Amen. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for the words of life that have made possible for us in and through Jesus Christ, your Son. And as we open up the book of Hebrews, we pray that you would continue to show us the words of life that are found within. And Lord, may you cause us as we learn from your, this, book of, this passage from Hebrews that you would increase in us our love for you, our love for Christ. We pray that you would be glorified and, and uh, may your spirit work in our hearts and teach us and cause us to respond to your word. Continue to be glorified through the building of your church, we pray. May you use your word to do so. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, again, good morning, brothers and sisters. It's so good to see all of you on a Sunday morning. Um, and uh, if you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2 is where we're going to be today. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. So, it's nice to be in Hebrews, uh, just thinking about how uh, (laughs) just amazing, you know, I'm no longer in the Old Testament, so I don't have to preach like one or two chapters or three chapters even at a time, but I can just kind of slow down and focus on a few verses, four verses in our today's text, which is nice, and and we don't do so just because uh, we're trying to lengthen it out, but there's just so much rich detail within the scriptures, and I hope that it will be encouragement to you. Uh, this is a significant passage in the book of Hebrews because it's the first of the, of the warning passages that many of you may have already be familiar with, uh, and so we're going to look at it today. But uh, I'll start with a story, just so what's something that happened this past week. In our recent English elders meeting, we meet monthly. We met on, um, we met this past Wednesday. It's usually on the second Wednesday of every month in the evening. Uh, we, we basically have a time of sharing, and I ask, basically, how, do, how are you doing? Basically, share, we talk of our, what's going on, what God is doing in our personal lives, what God is doing in our family life, in our work life, and, and you know, sometimes we talk a little ministry, but mostly it's, it states about our lives, and we want to share our lives with one another, and so we can uh, encourage and be accountable to one another uh, in, our, in our walk with the Lord. But I also, in our meetings, will we'll ask them to share one thing. Usually I ask them to share um, some answer to the question I have. And this month, it was the question I asked them, it was in light of our ministry leaders meeting where we, all our ministry leaders gathered, where we have a, an annual evaluation. We usually use a, a method called SWOT analysis, strength, weakness, opportunity, threats. And it's a, it's, it's, it works for us. But um, it was, of course, helpful to hear the answers of the ministry leaders. But I, I wanted to hear from our elders. I wanted to hear, what, what do they think? And I asked them basically uh, of uh, those strengths, weakness, opportunity, threats, and think of as a Bible, uh, which one strength, weakness, opportunity, or threat stands out most to you? You know, what was the Lord laying upon your heart? And we had a lot of variety of answers, various answers. Some shared a couple, one or two shared just one. And I want to share with you what, what one of our elders shared. And I really praise the Lord for our elders and just the wisdom that we all kind of uh, can share with one another. But this one elder shared that the threat that most concerned him is that we would lose, as a, we as a church would lose our love for Christ. Quite simple, a simple statement, a, a beautiful, truthful statement. 
we, uh, as a Bible, as a mature church, it's uh, 60 years old or so, it's a mature church with various services, various ministries, uh, it has a, we have biblical doctrine, we have many gifted leaders, we have many people, much activity, and yet even as such a church, we can slowly lose our first love, as did the church in Ephesus. And it can happen to us because at any given time, whether individually or corporately as a body, we are either drawing closer to Christ in our relation with him or we are drifting away from him. It's like a a raft or a little boat that you might place on an ocean. You put it in the ocean, um, more likely than not, it's going to drift, right? Unless it has an anchor. It's going to drift. It's going to go move away one or the other, especially if there's current. But if there's not current, even the wind kind of just blows you along. And we're like rafts in the ocean or even rafts on Lake Merced even, you know. You just sit there, you're gonna, the current's going to take you, the, the wind's going to push you one way or the other, even if you do nothing. And most often than not, if you do nothing, you will drift away from Christ. So how can we guard ourselves then as a church? Even as a mature, healthy church, how can we guard ourselves from drifting away from our love for Christ? I believe our pastor this morning answers this question for us. As you know, a letter of Hebrews was written to professing Christians of Jewish descent who were facing increasing persecution for their faith. And along with that increasing persecution, because of that, they also were experiencing increasing temptation to fall away, to fall away from Jesus and fall back to Judaism, to fall back to the Old Testament rituals, the Old Testament laws, the Old Testament culture, that would have been safe for them from the persecution. And yet, the author, in writing the book of Hebrews, or the letter of Hebrews, really, explains from Old Testament Scripture how Jesus is far better than the Old Covenant rituals and practices and and rules that that they were wanting to return to. And along with his explanations from Old Testament Scripture, the author uh, intersperses throughout explanations or exhortations, or we call them warnings, to his readers to not fall away or to not drift away, to not turn away from Christ. And we'll find that there are going to be five of these passages as we study Hebrews, and this is the first. But before we look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1 to 4, we must remember what has proceeded. In chapter 1, Hebrews has taught us that Jesus is the final word of God. God spoke in the past many ways, many portions, but in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. The God is, Jesus is the culmination of all God's revelation. He is the reason, he is, not only the, he is this, the, uh, the, the deliverer of God's message to us, a message of salvation, and he is the one through whom all of that off-promise of salvation is fulfilled because of his death and resurrection on the cross, from the cross. And this one who is the final word is much better than the angels who brought the word of God, because Jesus is the living word of God, and he is the son of God. Now, having shown that Christ is better than the angels, then the author now moves to chapter 2, verse 1, 4. Now he moves to the exhortation. It's like he's given us the, the 
explanation of the text, and now he gives the exhortation or the application of what we're to do with the text. And so as we look here in this four verses of this first warning passage, we are going to find three considerations, three things that we're to reflect upon, that we're to keep in mind, three considerations that will guard us from drifting away from Christ. Okay, three considerations that will guard us from drifting away from Christ. And the first consideration that all of us need to keep in mind is this, the consideration that of our attention to the word of Christ, our attention to the word of Christ. We see this in verse 1. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 1 with me, please. For this reason, we must, pay, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. Notice it begins with the phrase, for this reason, and that indicates that what follows relates to what precedes. And what, precede, what, it's, what is the reference, what is the reason that all of what he's going to say is really encompassed by all that is said in chapter 1. And we've already mentioned that the author has made his case that Jesus Christ, the God's Son, is the final word of God and the superior to the angels. So then, because Christ is God's final word, greater than the angels, this is then what we must do. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Notice, however, the author uses the pronoun we. He doesn't say, therefore, you must pay attention. He says, we. He includes himself in this exhortation. He includes himself among the, the Hebrew Christians that he's writing to. The danger of, and we learn that the danger of drifting away is a reality for all believers, all professing Christians. It can happen, it doesn't matter whether you're a young Christian or an old Christian. It doesn't matter if you're very, if you're very knowledgeable or not very knowledgeable. You can, we all can drift away. It's a reality for us as fallen people still live in a fallen world. Notice that this isn't a merely a suggestion, what we ought to do. What we, it's like what we could do. It's what we must do. It's, it's an obligation. It's a necessity. This is an obligation for us in light of that, God is, that Jesus is God's final word. What is it that we must do? We must pay attention. Pay attention means to give heed to something, to focus on something. The word is a, a beautiful word picture. It, it, uh, in its, if you will, etymology, it, it kind of simply means something you hold before you. You hold it before you. So when you hold something before you, you, you focus on it. You, you pay attention to it. You may be guarding it, but you, lots, in this context, it means to give heed to this. Pay attention to what it is before us. But what are we to pay attention to? In this case, we are to give much closer heed to what we have heard, the author says. And what is it that we've heard? Well, we learn that from the context of this passage. In verse 2, we learn what it is not. It is not the word spoken through angels. The word spoken through angels, which alludes to the Old Testament law. But rather, it's not, it's not the word spoken through angels, but what we have heard, in, according to verse 3, we learn that it is the message of salvation. It's a message of salvation that, we, that it was spoken through the Lord Jesus. And thus, we call it the word of Christ. It's often called the word of Christ. And the word of Christ that we are to pay much closer attention to was something that Jesus, first of all, began with what Jesus spoke. Whatever Jesus spoke was the word of Christ. He brought God's word, and he taught with authority throughout his ministry, your ministry on earth. And, he, and what he taught was heard and, and written down by the apostles in the Gospels. 
as he taught on earth, what was the heart of his message? Among all the things that Jesus taught, the heart of his message was a message of salvation, right? I know I'm not saying anything new to you guys. You already know that, that Jesus, he brought the gospel, the good news, and that's the good news of salvation. Mark, when he records how Jesus began his ministry, Mark 1, 14 and 15, he writes this, now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of good news, the gospel, the good news of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus came to teach us how to be saved from our sin through repentance and faith in his death and resurrection. And if you're a Christian here, and you probably all are, uh, even here on this Super Bowl Sunday, you could be at home getting ready for the big game, uh, but not that we really care, right? Uh, but if you're a Christian, the gospel is a fundamental truth that you understand, right? You could tell me the gospel right now, put you on the spot. You say, I know what the gospel is. It's about how Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins and how he rose from the grave on the third day, according to the scriptures. It's a fundamental truth. However, what happens is that this fundamental truth, as, as we, we come to faith in Jesus Christ through understanding the gospel, we, well, as we continue growing in our faith, we often start to take this gospel, this message of salvation, for granted. We take our whole salvation for granted, even. I know I've done that, and you've probably done the same. And we start thinking of this message of salvation as something that is an elementary truth to move on from instead of essential truths to hold on to. And so the author here wants us to pay closer attention to the word of Christ, especially this word of salvation that we have heard. And why must we do this? The warning is, the reason is, or the purpose is related in the end of verse 2, or verse 1, I'm sorry, so that we do not drift away. And that's our main point. So that we do not drift away. By the way, this is the only place in the, all the New Testament that this Greek word is used here, this verb drift away. It's interesting. It's used in other Greek literature, uh, other Greek literature but it's the only time in the New Testament. Um, in fact, it's used two other times in the Greek Septuagint. And one of those times is from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 21, which we read in our call to worship. But this verb is used, it's another picture verb, it has a very picture word. It's used in relation to water. It means to, for some, to flow by something, to slip away, to be washed away, or even to drift away, right? As we have. It's a pictures, a, a ship. Uh, that basically is not anchored, either anchored not to the pier or anchored by a, an anchor that's cast down into the, to the water. And since it's not anchored, therefore it drifts out to sea. If we fail to pay attention to the word of Christ, Hebrews reminds us or warns us that we are in danger of drifting away. You ever hear people say, oh, you've got to preach the gospel to yourself daily? That's kind of the idea here. Is that we must remember the word of Christ, especially the gospel, for in, in doing so, we guard ourselves from drifting away from that which is the most essential thing in our lives. Now, I know that nobody here, no one really ever intentionally drifts away. Oh, I think I'm going to just drift away from the Lord. We don't, no one intentionally drifts away, but in, drifting away is, just by its description, is, it's, it just happens gradually. It doesn't happen overnight. Many times it'll happen slowly in our life, over a a period of time, maybe even years. 
You may be sitting right here and you are drifting away. How then do we drift away? What, what, I thought that's, you know, I'm, I'm here at church. How's it possible that I might be drifting away? Well, I believe scripture gives us three insights into what may lead to us drifting away from Christ. And I'm sure there are others, but I'll share with you these three. These are three that uh, just came to my mind as I was thinking about it. And, this is, and this, is what, this is how we drift away, or what may cause us to drift away. Okay? These are some of the factors. Number one, we drift away when we focus on our desires and our pleasures. We drift away when we focus on our own desires and pleasures. And that is focused, and that is we put it primary in our life. What is our desire? What is our pleasure? In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4, Paul warns there that in the last days, that's these days, men will become lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That what's going to be characterized by people is that you're going, to, you're going to like your own pleasure more than God who is the ultimate pleasure. One chapter later then, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, we read this passage. Paul tells Timothy to preach the word in season, out of season, in 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. And then he says, this is the reason. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. People are going to drift away because of their own desires, their own pleasures that they want to pursue, their own life that they want to live. And what happens is that over time, they don't want to keep hearing someone tell them that that's not how you're supposed to live. People generally don't want to hear, like, you know, hey, you should do, live life this way rather than that way. People don't want to be corrected generally. Like, oh, you tell me I'm living my life wrong. The choice, I, what I want to be, is, is, not the, is not actually the way I'm supposed to live. Who are you to tell me that? And if people, since people don't generally like that, uh, you know, then what happens is we want to, we start rejecting that teacher, and we start finding teachers that will say things that will appease us, that will make us feel comfortable with my life, my, my, my lifestyle, or my choices that I, want, I wish to make, my desires and my, my pleasures that I want to pursue. And that's how we drift away from the word of Christ. But we choose to listen to teachers that will tell us what we want to hear rather than what God wants us to hear. Now, of course, it's not just sinful things that lead to this drift away from Christ, but even there are good things, things that God would commend to us that can also, if we focus on them, they too can lead us away from Christ. And it's subtle. And the second thing is this, that number two, we also drift away when we focus on our service and activity. When we focus on what we do, how we serve, of course, and many of you know the story of Mary and Martha. It is an illustrative of this point. While Martha was uh, distracted with her preparation for dinner because none less than Jesus was having dinner in her house. And if Jesus was coming to your house, I'm going to guess a lot of you are going to go to Costco and get some prime rib, right, and serve it to Jesus. You want to choose some best food to serve to him. Yeah, that's clean. Yeah. Okay. You're going to serve something delicious to Jesus if he showed up, or if I showed up at your house. But the fact is, she got so caught up in it. You know the story. 
What's your sister doing? She was sitting there at the feet of Jesus, listening to his word. Martha, being distracted by all her preparation for dinner, got upset, of course, and she complained to Jesus. And we read this, this is what Jesus answers. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part which shall not be taken away from her. So what did Mary choose? The good part. To sit at Jesus' feet and listen to his word. Sometimes our activity and our service gets us so busy that we forget to sit and listen to the word of Jesus. That's how we drift away. Okay, and that's number two. Number three, we also drift away when we focus on refuting false doctrine. Now, we ought to refute false doctrine. That's, you know, we, that's why we have sound doctrine, why we learn sound doctrine, so that we can correct when false teachers come into our midst. But a focus on refuting doctrine, a focus on just pointing out the error of the various teachers that are out there or the teachers that are within our midst, guarding the flock even, the focus on that can lead to its spiritual drift from Christ. And the words of Jesus to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2 to 3 um, are significant. Remember there in Ephesus, in, to the church in Ephesus, Revelation 2 particularly, he commended them for, for, being, for their good deeds, particularly their perseverance against the false prophets, the false apostles and teachers that were coming into the midst. They had sound doctrine. And yet, despite their sound doctrine and their perseverance, their faithfulness in refuting error, Jesus actually com- condemns them. And you know what he condemned them for. You have forgotten your first love. A church with sound doctrine had forgotten their, their first love. They were equipped to do what God calls them to do, to refute false teachers, but they had also forgotten what Paul had written to Timothy elsewhere. If you recall, God gives instructions to young Timothy, and who, by the way, happens to be a pastor at where? Ephesus. The church in Revelation 2. So they would have heard these words. And he writes to Timothy, one, chapter 1, verse 5. This is the why you ha- need to understand, hold on to the word of Christ. This is what the purpose of instruction and having sound doctrine is. But the goal of our instruction is love. Love from a pure heart, love from a good conscience, and love from a sincere faith. That all these, when we study God's word, yes, it produces right doctrine and sound doctrine in our lives, but it should first and foremost, as Paul tells Timothy, it should be love, a love for God, a love for others as a result of that love. And, but when we focus always on just pointing out other people's errors, and it's easy to do that, right? We all know that. <laughs> it's easy to point out the planks in other people's lives. It's always easy to jump on others because they, they spoke er- a little, an error you know, hopefully we're not like those kind of people. We hopefully we're gentle and gracious and correction as needed. Sometimes people just make mistakes, and moment to, uh, it's, they just further study will help them grow in, in, in the knowledge of Christ. But our focus when we is to study God's word and why we study God's word so that we might love Him more. If we walk out of here not loving God more. I've failed in my task. 
And I hope that, you know, it's not just me. Hopefully you have not responded to the word as you ought. But the drift away from Christ is real, brothers and sisters. It's real for me. It's real for you. Um, If we're not focusing our attention on the word of Christ, we're going to drift away. We're going to drift away. You know, the same thing happens in our own earthly relationships. If I'm not, and when you talk about uh, focusing our attention on the uh, on the Word, really, it's, it's developing this relationship with Christ. If I'm not focusing and communicating with my wife or my children, what happens by default is that we drift away, we drift apart. It's through the continual uh, focusing on communication. You know, I appreciate my wife; she always, you know, drives that home for me, and with our children, and uh, we, it, it's that communication that. The folks uh, the speaking words to one another and listening to each other helps us to, to grow deeper in our relationship and so much more when it comes to, when it comes to Christ. The, we need to pay much more close attention to the word of Christ. It will not happen overnight, this dri- this, the, the drift. It may take years. It may be the numerous choices we make to focus on our desires or on our activities, even, even activities for the Lord, on our right doctrine, instead of on the word of Christ that draws us to faith and love. So we must pay attention to the word of Christ. That's the first consideration. Now, the second consideration for us that will guard us from drifting away from Christ in this text is the accountability for the word of Christ that we see here. There's an accountability that all of us have for the word of Christ. Chapter 2, verse 2, and to first part of 3. For if the words spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The author now uses a common uh, form of reasoning, uh, reasoning from lesser to the greater, to emphasize the need to pay attention to the word of Christ. Now, though he begins with the lesser argument in verse 2, and then he moves to the greater argument in verse 3. But the lesser argument involves the word spoken through angels. The word spoken through angels. Uh, we mentioned before in, that New Testament Jews believed that the law of Moses was delivered by angels. That it was uh, ordained by them or mediated by them. And though when you look in Exodus, you actually don't see any explicit mention of angels in delivering the message, delivering the law to Moses. Nevertheless, ancient Jewish writings, as well as the histor- ancient Jewish historian like Josephus, mention this tradition that angels delivered the law to Moses. They were somehow like the, the meteor in between from God to Moses. But what's more, this isn't just a human tradition, but this tradition is actually confirmed biblically in the New Testament by Stephen, the uh, Stephen's words in Acts chapter 7, verse 53 and even Paul's words, the Apostle Paul's words in Galatians 3.19. I won't read them there, but you can write those verses down. You may look at it yourself and see that this is what Scripture teaches, that somehow angels were involved in the delivering and and ordaining of the law to to Moses. And so you can understand that it's for this reason that Jews highly regarded angels because they highly regarded God's law, God's word. You delivered God's word to us, and, and just as... And, and that's where the scripture tells us that we should have a high regard and hold in high esteem those who teach us the word of God. But in regard to this law, the author points out that this law that they received from angels was an, even, was an unalterable law. 
You couldn't just pick and choose which one you wanted to obey. The Israelites couldn't pick and choose. It was for them. They couldn't say, well, we, we like this part, you know, but we don't like this part. But so all of it was applicable to them. They couldn't just ignore it. Whenever they transgressed or disobeyed God's law, they all received a just penalty for their disobedience. If you recall back to our study in Numbers, Numbers alone shows these countless times where Israel disobeyed and they received the just penalty for their sins. You remember? When they didn't obey the, the, the command to enter the promised land, what happened to them? Everybody 20 and up died in the wilderness. When they greedily craved for meat, though they had entered the wilderness with all sorts of animals, and God gave them quail, along with that, a plague. They were impatient and complaining. God sent them snakes. They worshipped and acted immorally with false idols, and 23,000 were killed in one day. Even individual sins and disobedience were, were punished justly. A man was found gathering wood on the Sabbath day in, in violation of God's Sabbath laws. He was stoned to death. Korah and a couple of his friends rebelled against the leadership of Moses and Aaron, and he and his whole household were swallowed up by the earth. Each transgression and disobedience of God's law received a just penalty. And so, if the transgression of the law spoken by angels received a just penalty, that's the lesser argument, how much more then, when there is transgression of the greater word spoken by the greater than the angels, son? To put it exactly, the author says in verse 3, here's his argument, says, if, if angel, the word of angels spoken by angels received just penalty when they were violated, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Notice again, he includes himself, we, in this command, in this uh, exhortation. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Now, what is this escape here? The escape here is a mention, is, uh, mention is an escape from end time judgment. Very interestingly, the fifth warning passage in Hebrews chapter 12 will use the same escape terminology. We see it, this word used in some of the New Testament passages of escape from judgment. It's escape from final judgment, eternal judgment. So the, the answer to this rhetorical question is, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The answer is we won't. If we neglect so great a salvation, if we drift away from it, turn away from it, we will not escape the judgment that is coming. There's no escape from God's judgment. Significantly, the Greek word for neglect here is used three other times in the New Testament, most particularly Matthew 22, verse 5. And I want to share this verse with you because it's this, in the context of the parable of the wedding feast that Jesus tells. The wedding feast where he tells of how a king invited guests to the wedding feast of his son, the wedding banquet of his son, invited them to come. And in verse 5 of Matthew 22, this is what happened to those who were invited. But they paid no attention. That's the same word that's translated neglect here in Hebrews chapter 2. They paid no attention and they went their way. One to his own farm, another his own business. They ignored and neglected God's invitation to come to the wedding feast of his son. 
They ignored the word of God. They ignored the offer of salvation that was being made. And the penalty for them was, if you read the rest of the parable, you can do that later on, was that they were killed and destroyed by the king. And like those rude wedding guests, those who neglect Christ's word of salvation will receive the just penalty for their sin. To reject the invitation to salvation is a is a transgression of God's word. And you will receive the just penalty for your sin. Those who hear and receive this word, this word of, the, of, of, of Christ, are accountable for it. And if you don't pay attention to his word of salvation, if you drift away from it, if you neglect it, then you will not escape his judgment. These are strong words of warning. And they're troubling words of warning if you know your doctrine. Because as you read this passage, and just as I've explained it to you, I hope I've given you the warning, given you the sense of this warning that it is. It is at this point that where some are going to ask ourselves this question, is this passage teaching us that Christians can lose their salvation? There are some Christians out there in the Christendom that believe that a Christian can lose their salvation. We tend to, I won't give them a title, but there are some who believe that. But we as a church here do not believe that it's possible. In looking at the prevalence of New Testament passages, when you develop a doctrine, any doctrine in the, in the Christian church where they're going to hold to, we don't want to base it just on one verse or even just a set of verses within one book alone. We must develop our doctrine from all the different passages, from all the books in the Bible. It's our biblical theology. It's the theology taught by all these different passages that then drive towards a systematic theology that we teach here at the Bible. And we believe that the scriptures teach systematically, and if we summarize this, the doctrine of, of eternal security, we believe that the security of the believer, that the believer who is once saved will always be saved, cannot lose their salvation. And I want to show you that this is reflected in various New Testament passages. John chapter 6, these are the words of John. The Apostle John also recording for us the words of Jesus when he said, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Jesus is not going to cast out anyone who comes to faith in Jesus Christ. He's not going to do it because Father, it's a, his Father's gift to him. Ephesians 1.13, these are the words of the Apostle Paul. In him, that is Jesus, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him, with the Holy Spirit of promise. You were sealed. That seal is a guarantee. It's a stamp that this is, you are saved. It's a manifest, it manifests in spiritual gifts in your life. That Holy Spirit was given to you by God. It's not going to be snatched away because of something. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. This is also the words of Paul. Paul writes, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. The... Paul says confidently that Jesus Christ began a good work in you when you saved you, and he's going to complete it. He's going to perfect it. He's going to complete it in the day of Christ Jesus, when Christ returns. It doesn't say, oh, unless you somehow drift away, unless somehow you lose your salvation. He's going to complete it. Uh, 1 Peter 1, this is Peter's words. 
You who are uh, having received this inheritance that we have in, through faith in Christ, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Brothers and sisters, you have an inheritance of eternal life and salvation through faith in Christ, and that is you are protected by the power of God, sovereign, almighty God, and he's going to protect you for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. There's no mention here, but unless you fall away. See, the, uh, one more. Uh, even Jude writes about it. Jude chapter, uh, verse 24, where it says this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joys. It's not my God the Father. God is able to keep you from stumbling. He's able to make you stand. So, therefore, praise God. It's a, it's a benediction at the end. It draws us to praise God is able to stand, and he, is, and he will cause you to stand, so we can praise him. So all these, the predominance of these verses, there's others as well in the scriptures, but I hope I want to show you like different, different places in the scripture, different Old Testament, different New Testament uh, authors have indicated that when, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have a, a security in your soul. You, have a, a, you cannot lose your salvation. And that's what we teach and believe here. So even then, if a Christian can't lose their salvation, as scripture seems to teach, then how do we make sense of what we find here in the warning passages of Hebrews? Well, first of all, we must understand who they're addressed to. We already saw that he says, for this reason we must pay closer attention. The author is, uh, we don't know who he is, he's an honest person, but he is going to be a Christian. In fact, many times he, he, in, this, in the book of Hebrews, he will address the, his recipients as brethren, brothers, this is a letter that is written to Christians, okay? This is a letter written to Christians, so we must acknowledge that, that we begin there. So, it's a letter addressed to Christians. However, we must keep in mind, even as he addresses Christians, we know, even today, that among all those who are named the name of Christ, while all may profess faith in Christ, not all are of Christ. They may even... Uh, we see in play, uh, other passages like uh, John's epistles where there are those who were uh, among us but not of us. They, they left us because they were, they were not of us. There are such things. And, and so keep in mind then that these warning passages are written to Christians with an awareness that among Christians there are genuine believing Christians and then there are false Christians. Christians who probably are self-deceived. There are probably a few that may be intentionally deceptive and professing faith in Christ when they know they're not. But there are a lot who are just self-deceived. They think they're a Christian because, well, my parents baptized me as an infant. That's why I'm saved. I'm a Christian because I go to church every Sunday. I'm a Christian because, well, I try to live by the golden rule. And if you talk to enough people, you get answers like that. And people say they're Christians because of those kind of answers when those are, if you know the scriptures, they are not what makes you a Christian. They may be manifestations of a Christian life, but they're not. And so, with these warning passages, then here's the summary. These five warning passages in Hebrews 2, 3, 6, 10, and 12, these warning passages are written to Christians. They're warnings that serve to encourage genuine believers to continue following Christ. Continue following Christ. Um... <clears throat> You know, sometimes when you drive around the city and you, uh, you can't find parking, and then you see those parking lots, like, it's like totally empty, 
You know, it's like, oh, who knows what kind of lot it is. But, you know, it doesn't say anything. Uh, it, it, you, know, well, you know, there are a few cars parked there. And, you, you know, you're tempted to park there, right? Because it's just an empty lot. It's a few, few minutes. And then you see the sign. Warning. No parking. Violators will be towed. Okay. Now, trust me, I'm, I'm a righteous guy. Okay, no, no, not really. Just, <laughs> generally, I don't park in those places. But when I see that warning, and it says, warning, violators will be towed, and it will cost you X amount of dollars if you want to get your car back. That's enough of a warning for me, though I don't normally park there. I don't, I'm not planning to park there. I might be tempted to park there, but it's a warning enough to cause me to continue to obey the law and not park in those spots for my own benefit, for my own, uh, so I don't get ticketed or get towed, really. That's the warnings. These warnings serve for Christians. Though it's not likely you're going to fall away. If you belong to Christ, you're not going to fall away, but they, they are genuine warnings to you and me to guard ourselves from drifting away. These warnings are the means by which God causes you and me to respond, to love God's word, to pay attention to the word so that we don't fall away. Especially in those times when we where we start that, the, the tendency towards drift that happens for all of us. But having said that, knowing that we, those who belong to Christ, will never drift away. Secondly, though, these warnings serve to encourage false believers, false believers of the, of the coming judgment that is upon them for their neglect of the gospel. In these warnings, it may shake some up who are professing faith in Christ, but yet... They've never examined themselves to see if they're actually in the faith. And so it's a warning to them so that, well, I don't want to be, I want to escape the, the judgment. I don't want to say, well, I wrestled, I, I had believed in Jesus once in my life, so yeah, no, I don't walk with him at all. I don't worship anywhere. I don't, you know, I don't do anything for Christ throughout the week, but I, I, maybe, I, maybe I pray here and there. I don't want anybody, somebody like that, if they read or hear these warning paths, are going to be should be, if by the grace of God will be shaken so that they will repent of their waywardness that they that they have neglected the message of salvation and that they may repent and turn to Christ in genuine faith. And that's why these these warning passages serve. So keep in mind these two things are going to be uh, true as we as we read these passages. They're not just oh those are for just fake Christians, so it doesn't apply to me. I'm a genuine believer. No, they're for us. They're meant to accomplish something in our lives, to warn us to not drift away. Okay, so that's the warnings. Uh, If you have been drifting away from Christ, if you've been neglecting the message of salvation, you're not paying attention to the word of Christ, then this is God's warning for you. And perhaps it's showing to you that you may not be genuinely saved. And, and I would appeal to you that you would just consider, I, I cannot see in your heart. There's no one in this world that can say, I, 100%, you're saved. I can tell you, you're probably saved because I, I see these fruits in your life. But all of it, there, people can fake certain things, at least for the two or three hours a day on a Sunday that we're around each other. But hopefully, God may be showing you something. And if so, to consider God's grace to you and believe, repent and believe today. For how will you escape if you neglect so great a salvation? Lastly, our final consideration that will guard us from drifting away from Christ 
is the affirmation of the word of Christ. In the latter half, verse 3 to verse 4, and uh, we see here a description, really, uh, of how the word of Christ was delivered and how it was affirmed, how it's affirmed as that which is true. Middle of verse, uh, verse 3, after it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. It's almost as the author is writing here as a response to a, a possible challenge to the authenticity and authority of the word of Christ. He's, he's telling them, you must pay attention, more attention to the word of Christ. And someone said, well, how do I know it's the word of Christ? How do I know it's something that's authentic? How do I know it's authoritative for me? And so the author proceeds to describe for the reader why he or she can believe in the word of Christ. And three arguments are presented. Argument number one, the word of Christ was spoken through the Lord. It was first spoken through the Lord. The message of salvation did not come through angels, but it came from the Lord Jesus Christ. The Son of God himself came in to deliver the message that we have today. The one who is the final word of God, who is the supreme son of God, he is the one who delivered it. And if you believe the word of angels, you should believe the word of the son. Period. He who is the way, the truth, and the life spoke the message of salvation so that through him we may come to the Father. However, of course, there may be some hard-hearted people among the recipients of Hebrews who 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 might have said that, well, Maybe it's true that Jesus said it, but how do I know? I'm not a first-hand eyewitness of it. I didn't hear it for myself. I didn't see him for myself. And many of the recipients of Hebrews were not first-hand eyewitnesses of Christ. They were second-hand. And so secondly, the word of Christ not only was spoken to the Lord, but it was confirmed by those who heard, in this case particularly the apostles. Those who heard Christ firsthand were these apostles, those 12 who were chosen by the Lord, um, Judas Iscariot following, and then being replaced by Matthias. These who had followed Jesus throughout his earthly ministry, they saw his works, they heard his words, and they were ready to be witnesses on the stand to declare to others what Jesus said and what Jesus did. They would be his witnesses, who would receive, having received the power of the Holy Spirit. God would use these apostles, of course, to write for us down the words of Christ in the Gospels. God would use these apostles to write down the words about Christ in the rest of the epistles and even into the gospel, uh, the apocalypse of John. These, uh, God would, would call these apostles the foundation in a, of God's new holy temple, Ephesians chapter 2 which was the church. Jesus was the cornerstone. The apostles and prophets were the, were the foundation upon which we are being added to this church. We're being built up in this, this temple of the living God, the church. But then he continues, the author continues on and even answers, well, how would anyone know that, uh, that what they confirmed, what these apostles confirmed or wrote down was true? Uh, it's, a, it's a serious skeptic here. Genuinely, intellectually, you know, wants to know. So the author of Hebrews gives a third reason. Because thirdly, God testified to the authenticity of the, and authority of these messengers who spoke the word of Christ by gifting them with miraculous spiritual gifts. That God gave the spiritual gifts, these miraculous spiritual gifts, these uh, temporary miraculous spiritual gifts, and he gave them to the apostles so they could perform signs and wonders, miracles, 
as a testimony that they had the authority from God and authority from Christ to be his apostles. Just in the book of Acts, we see incidents where they, particularly Acts chapter 2, where they, they manifest the Spirit by speaking in tongues, speaking in different languages so they could tell people about the glories of Christ. They, we see instances where they healed the sick. We even see instances where they raised the dead. Eutychus, who fell. God gave these miraculous signs as gifts to the apostles in order to confirm their authority as messengers of Christ. Hebrews chapter 2 here, verse, uh, verse 4, is a, is a significant passage for those of us that have questions about whether the, about the ongoing debate, whether charismatic gifts, those miraculous sign gifts continue today. This verse, as well as 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, are relevant to that, answer that question. When Paul writes, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance, by what? By signs and wonders and miracles. Paul says clearly here in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, that the signs of an apostle, how you knew that someone was an apostle, was the signs and wonders and miracles. If someone, you know, so it's not that everybody else was doing it, because if everyone was doing it, then everybody would have the signs of the apostle. But only the apostles, those associated, closely associated with the apostles, had uh, the ability, these, these spiritual, these uh, miraculous spiritual gifts to testify to the authenticity of them as messengers of Christ. So eventually, with the cessation of the apostle of Christ, because everybody who saw him and heard him eventually died off, and only those could be apostles, because they were the first-hand eyewitnesses, and eventually with them, have, those apostles having written down the scriptures and completing the canon of scripture, the necessity for those miraculous sign gifts eventually faded away. They gradually ceased. And with all respect to our charismatic brethren out there, there is no continuation of the gifts to the church. Can God do miracles today? Absolutely. God can do whatever he wishes. God can do whatever, but he does not continue to give to the church, to Christians, the spiritual gift of the spiritual ability. Like if I give me the gift of healing, I say, hey, line up everybody. You got cancer, you got some eye problem, you got high blood pressure, line up because I got power to heal you right now, right here. That's power. Well, you start worshiping me as God if I have that power probably. That's a dangerous power. It doesn't, not needed because there's no message I'm speaking that's not from here already. This word, the, God's word is complete. When we look at all, and what's more, when we look at all of Scripture, again, we want to always build our systematic theology based upon all of Scripture teaches, we actually see a pattern. A pattern consistent throughout Scripture where you always see miracles, the prevalence of miracles, increased prevalence of miracles with increased new revelation from God. You always see this pattern. New revelation from God, you generally find new increases in miracles to attest to the authenticity of those who spoke the message. The first place we see it is in the time of Moses. Think of the, the ability, the plagues that he was in, the ten plagues and the, the, the staff that he was able, because he was giving the law. We think of Elijah, the period of Elijah and Elisha, prophets who spoke in a time when basically people had forgotten the law. And so they were speaking revelation, this period of first and second kings, and they too were able to perform various miracles that many of our children learned in Sunday school. And then, of course, Jesus and the apostles, the, that period of time in the New Testament, where they performed many miracles as a sign. And Jesus, of course, is a sign that he's the Son of God. Interestingly, from the book of Revelation, we, we, we learn that there's going to be a fourth time where there's increased revelation, increased signs. 
And it's going to be the period during the tribulation in Revelation chapter 11, where God will send two witnesses on earth. The church will be raptured. We're not going to be on earth telling people about Jesus. Our work will be done, but he's going to send two witnesses to tell his people, the, the nation of Israel, the Israelites who are on the earth. He's going to tell them, through them, they're going to be a mess, message of the gospel. And he's going to allow them to perform signs and wonders, even raising from the dead. So we see then that Christ's message of salvation is a trustworthy message. It's a trustworthy message because it's first spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's confirmed to us by the apostles who, who are eyewitnesses of it. And it was testified by God who gave the apostles the miraculous sign gifts as a sign that they were speaking with authenticity and authority of God himself. Now I know for you and me, that's, and that's important because we need to trust in God's word. All that we believe starts off with this faith that God gives us that we believe that this word is God's word and that in it we learn God has revealed himself to us. I know in our days of, of COVID, you know, when people are debating this, the science of vaccines and viruses, debating, you know, in our political world where there's debating about what's actually happening, what's actually reality, we're debating about who, what's bi- or differences of opinion on biology. My land, I don't know how anyone can say, can hear people speak and say, well, I don't know if that's true anymore. How do I know that's even true? There's so many varying opinions out there. And I'm afraid that kind of skepticism, and there's a healthy amount of skepticism that we ought to have regarding what information received from the world. But that, this will creep into how we even receive God's word. How do I know this is true? And that's a good, fair question, by the way. But it is, first of all, revealed to us, it's a spiritual book that needs to be spiritually appraised. It's the Spirit of God that teaches us. But there is evidence. But if, apart from the work of the Spirit, you won't believe the evidence. Man who is finite in his knowledge, often full of pride, is prone to error. That's that's reality of our world. But God's Son is not. He is not. And we can believe his message we can believe that this message that was affirmed for us has the word of Christ. And therefore, it is a book or, the, or truths that we, can, we ought to, we must pay much closer attention to. Let's wrap it up then in conclusion. The danger of drifting away, brothers and sisters, is a reality. It's a reality for all of us who profess faith in Christ. And recognize that. The drift is subtle, it's slow, it happens oftentimes by simple choices that you make now that you repeat throughout your life. As long as we live in the sinful world with a sin nature, the, the temptation, especially at times of trials, persecution, can, draw, can cause us to doubt God and to drift away from Christ. We drift away from he who is to be really our greatest treasure. And we fall away. So, remember Christ. Remember the word of Christ, for in it, it reveals to us who Christ is. Remember the cross. Remember that Jesus died on the cross. And remember that the cross is empty because he died and was buried, but he rose again. And where is he now? He's seated in heaven at the right hand of God the Father. And he who reigns there waits upon God to Monday make all his enemies a footstool. And we 
unless he returns soon, when we die, we're going to go into his presence, eventually to wait for his, to come with him in returning to the earth. That is our king, and that is his kingdom, which we have to pressure to, uh, uh, the privilege to be a part. But we will be a part of it as we hold on to Christ and not drift away from him. Three questions for you to think about. First of all, the question of where are you in your walk with Christ today? Perhaps this message will cause you to think about where you stand. Are you firmly anchored to Jesus or are you drifting away from him? Secondly, drifting, and notice, know that drifting is subtle and slow. So perhaps what are some ways, as we talked about those three different ways, maybe there's others, that you may be drifting away from Christ? And then thirdly, how can you pay much closer attention to the word of Christ in your life? What can you do personally? What kind of activity you can do? What kind of uh, maybe renew your devotion to hearing the word or listening to the word and meditate upon the word so you do not neglect the word? And lastly, and for, I want to just read for you Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 20. You know what uh, the author tells us to hold on to the, uh, to pay much closer attention to the word of Christ. But really, we hold on the word of Christ because it is there that we see Christ. It's Christ that we need to hold on to. Hebrews 6, 19 to 20, uses very similar imagery of this drifting away. And he talks about this hope we have as an anchor of the soul. We have a hope that's like an anchor for us. A hope both sure and steadfast. That's a good hope. It's not something wobbly. A hope that which enters in, within the veil. It's a hope that allows us to enter into the presence of God. How is that possible? Verse 20 of chapter 6, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus Christ has entered into within the veil. He's entered into the presence of God, not the temple, but the very presence of God, which the temple was really just a, a picture of. And because Jesus is seated there, we who have placed our hope in him, we who hold on to Jesus, have an anchor that holds us throughout the storms of life. And may you hold on to Jesus, our anchor. And may you always look to the throne in heaven above where our king sits. The son of God, the final word of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for our time in your word. Thank you for these truths. And we thank you most importantly for the word of Christ spoken through your Son, confirmed by the apostles, and testified to by you through signs and wonders and spiritual gifts. Lord, we praise you and thank you for this sure and steadfast hope that we have in Christ. And Lord, we confess that there are often times in our life that we focus on our pleasures and our desires. There are often times that we focus on our activity and our service There are often times that we focus on refuting others in their error. Not necessarily that these things are all bad or evil, but Lord, when they take place instead of our focus upon Christ, we drift away. Guard us, Father, from drifting. Use your warning in this passage to remind us to pay much closer attention to the word of Christ in our lives and that we might look to your throne, we're seated at your right hand, is our king, 
the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would allow us to hold fast to him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.